0: In John 15, Christ says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In John 10, he says, I am the door to the sheep. Now, was Christ really a vine? No. Was Christ really a door? Obviously not. Both of those things, as well as many other ways, because of his his style of teaching, the Lord used metaphors. This morning, as we continue our study of the church, we want to look at two metaphors that Christ uses about the church. And those two are the body of Christ and a building. Let's just review some passages here together, and I'm going to go through a whole lot of them. If you want to try and jot them down as I speak, that's fine. We're going to land on a couple and spend some time looking on it. But as Paul is writing about the local church, and he's writing about the nature of it, and he's talking about the local church as the body of Christ, he references that several times. Three times in Colossians he does, verses 118, verses 124, verse 219, where he says he is also the head of the body of the church. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Ephesians one twenty-three, he says this, and he put all and he and he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He does reference that same thing as the body of Christ again in chapter four, verse twelve of Ephesians, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And then again also in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever, by whatever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself and love. And then if you want to, this passage has a lot in it. We want to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 12, please. Find that in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, please. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it has a long passage about the body of Christ. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to highlight a few of the statements out of it. Very beginning in verse 12, going through the end of the chapter, I believe, verse 31 anyway. Verse 31 to the end of the chapter, yes. He says this, he says, For even as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are only one body, so also is Christ. And he begins to go through this passage here, and he begins to just just unpack this entire concept that that in verses 13 and 14, he's speaking about that you're not Jewish, and and you're not Greek, and you're not slave, you're not free. He says, we are made one in the Spirit. And in verse 15, he says, "'And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, "'I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason "'any the less a part of the body. "'And if the ear should say, because I'm not an ear, "'I'm not a part of the body,' It is not for this reason that any less a part of the body either. For if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them. And take note of that passage. I'm going to come, I'm going to reference it later, but take note of this passage. But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. So he goes on through and he continues to build this entire idea, this entire concept of the body of Christ as being similar to our human bodies. And then in Romans 12, he does something similar. Romans twelve five he says, so we who are many are in one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So first of all, we, let's talk about what it means to be in the body of Christ. Let's put some definition on that a little bit, all right? The body of Christ. Who's in it? What does it encompass? Well, first of all, I think it's safe to say that it's not encompassed by just those who are in this room. It's not just the American church either. You know, I think that we as people, this is not an American thing at all, though we pick on Americans all the time because we seem to deserve it more often than not. But anyway... We as believers, or individuals, we always are a little bit self-absorbed, thinking the world kind of revolves around us. You know, when we talk about the body of Christ, it is not just the American church. It is the church global. It is the church international. But not everyone who prays, or not everyone who gives money, or but not everyone who just comes to church is a part of the body of Christ. Matter of fact, it's really interesting that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, you can do to become a part of the body of Christ. Because it's not what you can do at all, it's what you believe that brings you into the body of Christ. So this morning, before we go any further, talking about this entire concept about the body of Christ and what it means and how it functions somewhat and all, the question I just need to ask is that what do you believe about him? Because what you believe about Jesus determines whether you are in the body of Christ or not. What we believe about him is important. That his death was all that it took to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. That is what he is asking you to believe. Now, there are people who would say, well, what about... What about all those other rules? What about all that stuff it says about this or that? What about all that violence in the Old Testament? What about, and you fill in the blank, and there are people who just have a plethora of whatabouts. Because all those things are interesting questions, but if you get the answer to those things, and you even get an answer you like, it doesn't mean you're in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean your sins have been paid. It means you're more knowledgeable which counts for nothing for eternity. What's important is what do you believe about Jesus? Because there's a lot of folks who say, all right, I'm willing to give that he really lived, but I don't know if I could give any more than that. Well, that's important. I'll be candid with you. That puts you outside the body of Christ. If you were to say, well, he might have barely been a religious teacher. He might have really even done some miracles. You know, but a lot of people do some crazy things. Just look at what Houdini did. Just look at what so-and-so did. Just look at what that happened there. Well, then I would just say that. Did any of those people who did really interesting things die and come back from the grave? Because Jesus did, with witnesses. What you believe about Jesus makes all the difference about your eternity and makes all the difference about you being in the body of Christ and even fitting into the sermon today. If you don't know whether you fit in the body of Christ, if you don't know what your eternity is, if you don't know, like, really whether or not he paid for your sins or what you believe about him, then, again, it's just candid. Then this, the rest of the sermon doesn't apply to you. It might be good information, but it won't apply to you. Because, you see, it doesn't matter whether you're in the Arctic or whether you're in the furthest reaches of the desert or whether you're in Billy Graham's living room on his couch with him it doesn't matter where you are what matters is what you believe about jesus and whoever believes in him as the gospel of john records whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life this morning if you're not sure if you are in the body of christ if you're not sure that jesus ever paid for your sins i can just tell you right now we can fix that problem in this very moment If you've never placed your faith in Christ as the only payment for your sin, I would encourage you to do it right now in this place in the quietness of your heart. You see, it's it's as simple as this. In just a moment, I am going to just pause this service. We're just going to stop everything, and we're going to take a moment of silence. And if you have never really ever talked to God about your relationship with Him, if you've never ever believed that He is all it takes for you to fix your sin problem. Here in the next moment, you can fix that. And people would say, well, why do I have to say? You have to say whatever you say to God. It needs to encompass a few details, though. The admission that you are a sinner, that you've broken God's laws, because everyone in here is going to admit the same thing. So if you were to say you didn't do that, you would be the only one in the room. All right? Because I can just go through the room and I can point out a few people in this room that are sinners and I can even tell you how. But I won't do that. Don't worry, Jack. All right? <laughs> so you just need to, uh, to admit to him in the silence of your heart and just in your own speaking to him silently that I am a sinner. I can't fix my sin problem. And I understand that Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world. And right now I believe that Jesus' death paid for my sins. That's what you would need to say to him. That's believing that he died for your sins. Right now, I'm just going to pause, take a moment of silence, and just ask folks to bow their head, just be quiet. And if you need to talk to God about your relationship with him or your lack of one, I would suggest you talk to him about this, about what's on the screen right now. We're going to take one minute right now. Let's just close our eyes. and, If you trusted Christ, pray for someone around us who might not have done that yet. Father, this morning, if there's anyone here in this room that has never trusted you for their salvation, I pray that in this time they would. If there's anyone in this room who wants to but is still confused, I pray that they'd come up and talk to me or someone else in this room who could clearly explain to them what it means to place their faith in Christ and to believe in him for the salvation of their sins. Father, I thank you that you made that clear to me, and I thank you that you forgave me and brought me into your family. And many others in this room have that same experience. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. If you've never trusted Christ, that's what it is right there. It is explaining, talking to him about those few details, and in the intention of your heart, saying, I realize I can't fix my sin. And I realize that Jesus did that on the cross, and I want to believe that. It's that easy, but it wasn't cheap. And don't anyone ever tell you it was. What is easy is not always cheap. It just means it was a gift. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by the grace of God, and it is a gift from God so that none of us could ever say we earned it ourselves. And so while it may, become, it may be easy to believe in Christ, it is not cheap because it cost him his life so that you may have that salvation. And as I have often said, crossing people, if this is the point of decision, this line in the middle of the room is the point of decision. And on this line right here, I do not know Christ as my Savior. And in this point of line right here, I trusted him as my Savior. On this point of that line, once I've trusted him, it's cost me everything. He required nothing of me to trust him as a Savior. But once I say I am his, he requires everything of me to be his disciple and to follow him and to take on his name. But anyone who is saved, they have to understand that coming to Christ means laying down their life, giving up their ambitions for their own glory, and taking on the ambitions of his. That's what it means to become into the body of Christ. And if you just believed that this morning, then you are a member of the body of Christ, a worldwide, global, supernatural phenomenon. This body of Christ, there are three things about it let's talk about. This body of Christ, it is united, it is diverse, and it is interdependent. So, it is united because it is composed of many members and yet it is one. Everyone, every member, Everyone is a member of one another. We just read that in 12, Romans 12, 3, four and five. We are united because we are knit together by Christ. That's what Colossians 2:19 says. "Christ's spirit, the helper, holds us together like ligaments and sinew. And he keeps us from being a loose bag of bones in the skin. He holds us together through his Holy Spirit, not in a way that I can explain to you, not in a way that I can just draw it out for you, but this is what I believe Scripture teaches, and by faith, I believe that. And when you meet a Christian from the other side of the world, and you've never, ever talked, and you immediately have kinship, and you know what each other's talking about, and you understand each other's experiences, you understand that you've been knit together by the Holy Spirit with Christians all over the world. We are, div- we are diverse because we are different colors, different nationalities, different cultures, different past experiences, different economics, different spiritual gifts, different everything. Some of us don't move when we sing. That's okay. Some of us have our hands in the air when the music starts. That's okay. Okay. There are African churches that dance in worship. There are Latin American churches that start an hour after church started. I've been there. I've done that. But once they get started, they go on for a long time. There are Korean churches that get up every morning and pray, and they don't do it when it's convenient. They get up early and pray every day. When Betty and I were going to seminary in Dallas, we attended the Arab Church of Dallas because at that time we were really praying and asking God to lead us into work among Muslims overseas. We attended there. The Arab Church of Dallas, there were Jordanians, there were Syrians, Irians, Somalis, Egyptians, Lebanese. You'd walk into the church and it was a small old place, two sections, an out down the middle. There were about five seats over here for the English-speaking people, and there was only four of us in the whole church, and they had little headphones so we could understand it because everything was spoken in Arabic. They sang one hymn in English for us, um, but everything else was in Arabic, and then they simultaneously translated it into the headsets for us. <laughs> the translator sat in a little room over here, and he used to enjoy that as the, spe- the preacher was speaking, and Pastor Tony would say something, well, Sahib would say, oh, he's talking to you, Tim, when he said that, you know. So no one else could hear that, but we could, you know. When you come into that little church, there would be some women sitting with their husbands. There would be some women sitting apart from their husbands. There would be some women with their head covered. There would be others without their head covered. There were every form of expression of worship that you could think of probably in that little church of about 80 people. They were diverse, but they were united. Every week after church, and I guess I didn't go there for the food, but it was a nice bonus. Every week after church, they had a giant meal, and they brought stuff together. We didn't contribute much because fried chicken was not Arabic. But you know what? What they cooked was great. And that little microcosm of the church there in North Dallas is just what it's going to be like one day. Everyone comes together. Matter of fact, that's what it's like today. Thousands of expressions of worship. Thousands of ways of relating to God. And he honors them. And they are all in the body of Christ. At the same time, the church is interdependent. Just like the human body must have cooperation and dependence of all the parts, so must the church, the church body. When we hear that we are in Christ, we must know that it is true that we are part of each other. It implies a dependence on each other, a loving concern that compels us to enter into the life of each other and walk along with each other in all kinds of circumstances. And, And I said it a few weeks ago, and it's really true, and that's that if it's happening in your life, it's happening in our church. Because what God is doing in your life will affect our church. And so if God is doing something incredible, and amazing and transformative, there are other people walking around like going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God can do that in Dave's life, then he can maybe change my life in that area. At the same time, at the same time, if you are walking in sin, and other brothers and sisters see you do that, then they will go, why? It's so hard. I mean, you know what? I'm tired of trying myself. I'm going to give in to What God is doing in your life, he is doing in our church. He is doing in our church. And the same thing is true internationally because what is happening in the Coptic church in Egypt right now is happening to all of us. And as I asked Sean to pray for us today, on this week, 28 were killed on the way to a retreat. Others were injured. And and the number is around 100 now of Coptic Christians in Egypt who have been martyred for their faith. And that's just a fraction of what's happening worldwide all the time. Now, Every body has a head. And Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. If you want to flip open in your Bible to Colossians 1. Colossians 1 has a ton of stuff about the body of Christ in it. We're not going to take the time to read all of it, but I would encourage you if you're interested in more, reading more about it. Colossians 1 Colossians 2, but especially Colossians 1, has some great passages. The one passage I want to focus on one today is the one on the screen. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things all things, come on, talk, work with me here. There we go. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the absolute authority of what is happening in this room here today. He is the absolute authority, the supreme headship, of what is happening in the church worldwide. And so some would say, well, I don't see him come around making some decisions because I sure wouldn't have done that if, if I don't think he would have done that the way you just did that, Tim Smith. Well, the thing about that is, is that one thing is true. One day I will answer to him as all of our elders will answer to him for how we shepherded this church just like every husband in this room will answer to him for how they shepherd their families. Headship is accountable to the Lord Jesus in every regard. He gives us our substance, our life, our light. He holds us together. His spiritual gifts, His spirit leads us and gifts us and ties us together. He gives the church mission and purpose to make disciples, to equip the saints for works of service. There are many, many beautiful buildings in this world that have the church, have the name church on them. You can see your pictures if you travel Europe or if you go into the cities. There are beautiful, beautiful buildings. You don't have to go into the city. There are churches in our area. Out here, right here on Almshouse Road, there's a gorgeous church. But putting the word church on a building does not mean that the spirit of Jesus is in it. It does not mean that the spirit of Jesus is the Lord of that church. Churches that yield to him. Churches that have people in it that are believers in him. Those people are part of the body of Christ. It does not matter what building you're in. You don't have to be in a building to be a part of the body of Christ. So, but speaking about the building, the other metaphor is that of a building. 1 Corinthians speaks of spiritual gifts being given to build up the body. Ephesians 2.21 speaks of the building growing. Paul speaks of the church in Corinth as being God's building. And in 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. The foundation of this building that he speaks about is Christ Jesus, laid by the prophets. That's what he says in this passage. Um, um, Laid by the prophets and by the apostles. And what they laid down was their teaching about Jesus. And so the foundation of any spiritual building, the foundation of the church, is Jesus. It's what is true about him, why he came, what he did when he was here, what he's preparing for us in the future. But then there's another part of this building, and it is the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone First Peter talks about. He says that it is the elect and precious cornerstone. And You know, I don't know that many buildings anymore are built with cornerstones because they're built with wood and iron and all kinds of other things. But in the buildings that they were building at that time, in many buildings around the world, that first block, that first stone they put down determines what the rest of the entire building would be like. And if that first stone is not perfectly square in every regard... If it's tilted just a little bit, not even a whole lot, but just a little bit, because just a little bit of being off, just a little bit of being off in the building, in the beginning will lead to it being off a lot in the end. And so this cornerstone that he speaks of as Jesus had to be perfectly square, had to be perfectly right, had to be absolutely true in every regard. And that way, if anything was built upon it, it would remain stable. The integrity of the building would remain sure. Because if it wasn't, that building would pull itself apart. And you see that happening, even in this one right now. Parts of this building are skewed, and you see them in your homes. I live in a development that I don't know. There was nothing true in my home. Uh Uh-uh. Because things don't fit, and you probably have a home like that too. That means that somewhere, something, when they built your home, was not true. If we're talking about a spiritual building, that spiritual building needs to be absolutely true. And Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. That's why when you are thinking about, I mean, I hear it all the time, and, and, and uh, I'll be really, I'm not saying this is bad, but I'm saying, I, I often have people say, have you heard so-and-so on the radio? Have you heard so-and-so's podcast? Have you read so-and-so's book? And there's too many of them out there, and there's too many of you, you know, so I haven't heard them all, but I've heard some. But as you're listening to them, and as you're processing them, you need to be asking yourself, is what I'm hearing true? Is this quote-unquote truth, I'm going to use that with a little t, Is this teaching? Let's use that. Is this teaching that I'm bringing in right now, is this something I can build my life on? Because if it's not square, if it's not true, then eventually my life is going to teeter later on. And so you need to be thinking about that. You need to be considering who it is you're listening to, who it is you're reading. You need to be considering whether or not I'm telling you the truth. There are a lot of folks out there in ta- out there on the internet world and some of them are telling you that the world's ending on a particular day and they're asking you for your money and they're having cars down in the city telling, give us your money because the end of the world's coming soon and they'll put a date on it and everything and it's astonishing the number of people who believe that. Astonishing. You need to know whether what you're hearing on that radio, with what you're hearing on the Internet, with what you're reading is true. And the only way you're going to know that is by being here, is by being in this book. And when you hear something from this pulpit, you need to go back and say, is that true? And you need to look it up. And when you hear something on the Internet or on the radio, or in a book, you need to go to the Word and say, is that true? And if you're not sure, you can come here. I might not know immediately, because some of the things they teach about are really extraneous sometimes. But we could study it together. You can study it with someone else. But you need to know that you are building your life, your spiritual life, on what is absolutely true. And if it's not in here, then you need to be careful for your own spiritual sake. Then finally, in 1 Peter 2, he says, You also as living stones were built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a royal priesthood. That word stones there, because all of us know Petra, because, you know, some of us are old enough to think they were a really cool rock group at one time. Um, And and we know Petra because it's like this place in the Middle East. And we know Petra because, oh, that's how Peter's name got started upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church. That's Petra. It means, well, Petra in and of itself means a stone, a rock. Petras means a a rock among many rocks. But then there's this other word, lithos, which is the word used in our passage here, in this passage that Peter is speaking about, lithos. And it means a worked stone, a stone that has been carved, that is especially shaped. That is the stone he's talking about. We are spiritual stones that are being shaped and formed into what? The image of Christ. And the image of Christ is what he's putting himself, that's what he's building into this spiritual house. Men and women and children that have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ and are being shaped, sanctified is the word you could use, into the image of Christ, and they are the living stones. So Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He saves us, he shapes us, and he sets us in the building. In preparing for this sermon, I found an illustration that I thought was pretty interesting. I thought it demonstrated the interdependence we have for one another. In Africa, the great, there are many animals that migrate throughout the continent, but two of these massive herds migrate together, the zebra and the wildebeest. And they'll tell you that on those two species, one has an outstanding eyesight but very little smell. The other has an outstanding sense of smell with really poor eyesight. And the tour guys there tell all of their guests They migrate together because they depend on each other to do so. Well, that's a great, great illustration, isn't it? Because that's true about us as well. No one needs to migrate this world alone because we are not, we don't have all the answers in and of ourselves. But this passage, these passages we've talked about here today are much bigger than our relationships and what we're supposed to be about in the church. And you heard us reference it. Really, the passages speak to something else totally that we don't, talk, we don't focus on very much when we teach about the body of Christ. And that is the sovereignty and the supreme headship of God over His church. Because, you see, the church is not like a headless horseman type of character that functions perfectly fine without its head. Now, there are a lot of buildings with the name church on them that are headless churches because they are not connected to Christ. They do not preach Christ. They do not preach his truth, and they do not act Christ. They do not hold its members to that truth. Perhaps you could say that they are headless churches. But the church has a head, and that head is Jesus And no body part moves or functions apart from his instruction, apart from his awareness. And that was terribly clear with this metaphor of the building. He is the foundation. That's what gets built on. He is the cornerstone. That's what sets the entire building into shape and function and form. And anything that's not built on him will will crumble. And he is the builder. No one is placed in the wall that he didn't place there. And Paul states all this in 2 Corinthians, although he never mentions the buildings and bodies, he does say this. He asks this question about ministers of the gospel. He says, who is adequate? In 2 Corinthians 2.16. He's just walked through the gospel. He's just walked through being in ministry there. He starts out in chapter 1, he says that that the way that God comforts us, that's the very thing that we comfort others with. That's the context for ministry. How God is working in my life is how God's going to use my life to work in your life. And then he begins to talk about what ministry is like in chapter one, chapter two. And he says in chapter two fifteen, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God, to those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. But to the to an but to the one an aroma from death to death and to the other aroma from life to life. And he says, and who, who is adequate for this? Who is adequate to be put in this wall that he's building? Who fits in? Who's made perfect? Who's made right to fit in? And he goes on further in chapter 3, verse 5, and he says this, none of us are. There's not a one of us are, but Jesus is, and Jesus makes us adequate. Chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also makes us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There is no one who really is able to fit into this wall. There's no one who's deserving to go be put into this wall, the spiritual building that he's building. There's no one who really belongs in the body of Christ. There's no one who deserves it. But Jesus, in his mercy, in his compassion, in his salvific power to, that his own son would die for our sins, by that he places us in the body of Christ. By that, he puts us in this wall that is a spiritual building. There are many who preach Jesus. That does not mean it is eternal, and that does not mean it's effective. Ministry apart from him will burn in the last days, and he will sort it out in no uncertain way. But the gist of all this is found in chapter 4, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians He continues to talk about ministry, and then he comes to this one place, and he says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. When we talk about being in the body of Christ, when we think about being in a spiritual building that he is building we are not in that building. We are not a part of this body of Christ because we have it together. There is a great misunderstanding that some of us have that the more perfect my life is, the, more, the better I can cover up my sin and my brokenness and my problems, the better off I'll be in church because that's what church is all about. It's all about good people. It's all about people who don't have a problem with sin. It's all about people who aren't lusting and all that kind of nonsense. They don't allow that in church, uh-uh. And that's what the world thinks. And that's what a lot of people out there who wish they had an answer think. But they don't come here because they think we have it together. Because they think that we don't do that kind of stuff. But we know we do. And we know that Jesus intercedes on our behalf and takes that sin and that brokenness and he uses it. The body of Christ is not a place where people have it together. The body of Christ is a place where Jesus lives out of us in a glorious fashion. In all of our brokenness, in all of our sinfulness, in all of our weakness, that, that right there, is when the body of Christ takes shape and it looks like Him and it smells like Him and it tastes like Him. That is the body of Christ. And that's why we get to be a part of it. Because we are broken, smelly, sinful, hateful, jealous people. And Christ steps in and he forgives that sin and he interjects his spirit into us and he says, you, just like you are, I'll use you. Let me put you in this spot in my building. This is where I need you. That's how he puts the church on a stage, not because people are great, but because he is great. But because he is great. Let's pray.